0: I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries, host of Teaching Hard History, another podcast from Learning for Justice. Did you know that each time you listen to an episode of The Mind Online, you can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development? If you're an educator, go to learningforjustice.org podcastpd podcast PD, PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. You can also find that link in the show notes. And once you're there, enter the unique code word for the episode. The code for this episode is at the end of the show. Be sure to get your certificate after this episode of The Mind Online.
1: Explained to my seven year old that sometimes people use the internet to say mean things about other people. And this was our example. A dear family friend who was an educator sent out a tweet encouraging teachers not to use cultural appropriation to teach about Thanksgiving and to tell the truth about this country's relationship with Native people. Sounds straightforward enough, but it resulted in swift backlash, news headlines, and personal insults directed at this educator. She was called a loon, a socialist scumbag, Stalin, as in Joseph Stalin, and dumb, among many other more profane things. She was accused of wanting to teach students to hate the United States and indoctrinate them into leftist and Marxist and fascist agendas. It went on and on. My child was concerned for our friend. Now, I didn't give her the details I just gave you, but I told her that other people were showing our friend support. More importantly, I told her that our friend was using her voice to speak the truth. And in that, I think there's a significant lesson. I'm Anita Bell, your host for The Mind Online, a podcast of teaching tolerance, which is a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. In each episode, we'll explore an aspect of the digital literacy world, what educators and students alike need to know, and how educators can guide students to be safe, informed digital citizens. Thank you for joining me for today's episode on digital literacy and youth civic engagement. If I had carried the conversation with my little one further, and I will soon, I would have told her that we can all use our voices to speak the truth, including her. Young people have done it for generations. Look at the Children's March in Birmingham and the young people of Selma who protested for their parents' right to vote. Look at the students who walked out of their East L.A. high schools in 1968 to protest the inequitable conditions in their district. Look at the young people of Chicago and Parkland today who have been organizing to help stop gun violence in their communities. The broader reach of social media makes it possible to foment and publicize civic action in ways we haven't been able to in previous generations. And the Black Lives Matter movement is a prime example of that. Yet, some people have criticized it as leaderless and aimless. Others have said it's not, quote, real activism, or it's what some have called slacktivism. Today, I'm talking with Erica Hodgen and Joe Kahn about this very idea, and much more. They work with the Civic Engagement Research Group at the University of California at Riverside. Educators are in such an important position to support young people in using digital media to lift their voices and affect change. And Erica and Joe are in the business of supporting educators in this work. Let's get into it. Erica and Joseph, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to speak with you both. Uh, First, can we just start by having you introduce yourselves and telling us a little about what you do? Erica, you can start first.
2: Sure. And thank you for having us. We're really excited to talk to you. Um, So my name is Erica Hodgen, and I work... Um, as the Associate Director of the Civic Engagement Research Group with my colleague, Joe Kahn. And we're based out of um, the University of California at Riverside in the Graduate School of Education. And our group um, focuses on... A combination of research, but also working in the field with um, young people, with schools, school districts, and teachers. And our focus is supporting youth civic engagement and also understanding and promoting digital literacy um, as it relates to civic engagement. And just a little bit more background on myself. I also, um, before coming to our group, was a high school and middle school teacher here in California um, and taught English and social studies. And so I think I'll turn it over to Joe to introduce himself now.
3: Hi. And again, thank you for this opportunity. My name's Joe Kahn. And as Erica said, we work together in the Civic Engagement Research Group. Um, I uh, I have been a professor for, for a good number of years, but uh, like Erica, before doing that was a high school social studies teacher. And we do a lot of studies of youth, young people's civic and political engagement and of the ways educators can support that. And I think one of the things uh, in the last few years we've really been emphasizing is the role of digital media uh, and, the n- and the need to think about how to support young people's use of digital media to be uh, you know, effective within the civic and political realm.
1: Thank you, thank you both. Um, I think that the fusion of these two things, uh, the digital media and civic engagement, um, are so important, uh, that fusion is so important and it's something that's certainly important to us and that we um, look forward to engaging our community about. So you two are the perfect folks to talk to. And with that, I just wanna jump right in I think sometimes when we hear the term digital literacy, uh, different things come to mind to different people. So I'd just like to know, how do you define digital literacy? What does it mean to you?
3: You know, that is a great question, because I think one thing we found, and uh, I can speak for myself where I started off with, you know, when I would hear a term like that, was a focusing on the ability to uh, sort of consume content that's out there uh, what you know online or in different digital forms to consume it thoughtfully which means both to have enough background to understand what's being discussed but also how to do things like judge the credibility of what's out there. The more though that we've delved into this the more we realized of course that part of what makes the digital revolution so important is that it creates opportunity for all of us, uh, and in some ways especially for young people because they're on the cutting edge of so much of this, not just to consume content, but also to remix content, to produce content, and definitely to circulate content. And the, what that means is that a lot of the literacies that are needed go far beyond consumption. You know, as we think of literacy like the ability to read a book, it goes far beyond consumption and it includes production, circulation, remixing, all of that.
1: So that's, that's a lot to think about. <laughs> it's a lot to grapple with. Because of the advancements we've made in the course of the digital revolution, as you were saying, um, I think sometimes people find it hard just to keep up, uh, let alone teach about it in the various ways uh, they can um, I guess get down to what's most important when we're teaching young people so that said how do you think teachers can best convey these skills in their classrooms Um, especially when their time is so limited and there are so many demands regarding standards etc what how can they approach it
2: yeah it's such a great point i mean we know that time is limited and teachers are juggling so many different um, priorities and demands Um, And what we have seen in our work with educators across the country is that it works best when teachers are able to integrate digital literacy into their core curriculum in ways that extend their core aims and their goals. So how, you know, we like to think of it is that digital literacy is a core literacy for our world today. It's incredibly important for young people to know how to navigate digital information, to be able to know how to express themselves in digital spaces, um, and to be able to use those kinds of tools not only to learn, but also to communicate. And so we have really seen digital literacy as a thread that can be woven into many different content areas. So of course across you know, social studies and English, but also we've seen you know in math and science the ways in which it can help to extend and expand the curriculum. So ideally, it's not an add-on or an extra piece, um, but instead is woven throughout. And we know also that young people really benefit from multiple opportunities to engage with digital media and to also learn about and to build their kinds of skills and capacities in digital literacy. So it's really important for young people to have opportunities um, to use digital media in a variety of projects. And also I would say, too, that it's really helpful for them to have Just lots of practice, (laughs) as any of us, um, to really have opportunities to practice when the stakes are not so high, um, and then also to have, you know, projects, sort of higher stakes, deeper projects. Um, But that combination is really important. And I know that it, you know, for many folks that are just starting out and thinking about how to integrate digital literacy, it can feel overwhelming or daunting. And so I always recommend um, that teachers pick one thing that will help to um, further expand their curriculum and what they're already doing in the classroom. And basically to start small and try one thing, and then to sort of build from there, um, and to really then learn alongside your students. Um, I think that's one way for teachers to really think about how to integrate it.
1: Thank you for that. And um, I just want to go back to something you, you just said, actually, which was uh, this idea of teachers learning alongside their students. Certainly there are those of us who have more of um, a facility with using new tools and, and technologies than others. And so do you have any thoughts about... Um, some good ways teachers can increase their learning on their own or, you know, any particular, I mean, I was going to ask you about resources later, but I think this is a good part to talk about that for those who are trying to build up their own knowledge.
2: Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. And um, I mean, we'll, we can kind of speak to that throughout the conversation, but one thing I would say um, now is that what we've really found is that you know? It's important for teachers to give themselves, um, to the extent that they can, time and space to really use the tools themselves. So, you know, if you're wanting to, for example. Um, have your students create or build an infographic then it's really helpful if you can give yourself some time to try to create an infographic yourself and see you know what comes up for you as you are learning because that is in many ways the ways in which you can scaffold and support your students in learning it. Um, and then I would also say to find colleagues or people within your network, whether it's in your building or outside of your, building or online to find teachers that are also learning and extending their practice in these ways and to really connect with them. And then the other thing I would say is that, you know, while young people are frequent, many young people are frequent users of digital media, that doesn't mean that they know necessarily how to use digital tools for academic purposes. And so, I think it's really important that we don't make assumptions that they do always know more than adults. I think they, you know, the mm-hmm. kind of argument around the digital native is true in many respects, but in other ways, young people still really need um, support. And we found through our surveys that young people want um, adult support in learning how to, for example, judge the credibility of information that they find online. And we also know that in many ways, young people will use digital tools for social purposes, but that doesn't mean they know how to pivot those kinds of skills that they've built up for a kind of civic purpose or an academic purpose to really get their voice out there in those kinds of ways is different than in sort of social um, contexts.
1: That's really a great point. Um, And we know studies have come out in the last year and change uh, just about how much all of us really don't know how to properly evaluate um, the information we see online and that certainly applies to young people too so thank you for stressing that. Um, so we know that in some cases people might be a little hesitant to dig into this in classrooms and so I'm glad you really spoke to you know keeping it simple when you're starting it out. Um, I would say some of that hesitation also might lie around the age of the students or or what grade you're teaching. So is there a such thing as it being too early to start teaching these digital literacy skills?
3: You know, it's a super interesting question. I think as with most, you know, uh, most aspects of learning, one needs to figure out what are the right things to talk about at different ages, and what are the right ways to do it. But increasingly, and I think going forward, it will just be true that a great deal of the information all of us get is going to be coming through these forms of media and social media. And that will be true and is true for, say, elementary-age kids, just as it's true for high school students, just as it's true for adults. So I, I think there's, uh, there's no time uh, you know, that's too soon in the same way that there's no time that's too soon in terms of uh, what we might think of as conventional forms of literacy. But that said, when asked to think about how to do it, uh, with young kids in ways that are, is, is age-appropriate. Um, a nice thing about starting early is, I think, as both you and Erica have highlighted, these are challenges that all of us face and struggle with and that are going to take multiple opportunities to get better at. It's not something like you you know do a one-week or a three-week unit and then bang, people are digitally literate. Rather, it's something that over time is going to both need reinforcement and deepening. So I think it's great if folks can start in elementary school. Um, But let me just highlight a couple things that you might want to think about uh, as a teacher and that we've seen teachers thinking about when they do this uh, in elementary school. One big thing is to think about the question of audience it may be that at the elementary school level, it's more important to control and vet what kids see than you would do at the high school level. Now, those will always be concerns at any level within a school system, but it could well be that in an elementary school classroom, if, if students write a blog, it would be released so that you know only other members of the class could comment on the blog, or members of the class plus, uh, say, family members could comment on the blog. You might not do what you would do in a high school where the blog might be much more live and there might be opportunities for other students in other uh, districts or around the country to comment or where people might blog for a truly public, open audience. That might not be as appropriate at the elementary school level. So I think we're always thinking about, and you need to always be thinking about, what's appropriate given the age of the kids, but. But no doubt these are issues that we're all going to have to deal with at all ages.
1: Let's take just a quick break when you'll learn about more ways and resources to make your practice and curriculum more equitable. Did you know that Teaching Tolerance has other podcasts? We've got Teaching Hard History, which builds on our framework Teaching Hard History American Slavery. Listen as our host, history professor Hassan Kwame Jeffries, brings us to lessons we should have learned in school through the voices of leading scholars and educators. It's good advice for teachers and good information for everybody. We've also got Queer America, hosted by professors Lila Roop and John D'Amelio. Joined by scholars and educators, they take us on a journey that spans from Harlem to the frontier West, revealing stories of LGBTQ life that belong in our consciousness and in our classrooms. Find both podcasts at tolerance.org/podcasts and use them to help you build a more robust and inclusive curriculum. Next, Erica Joe and I talk empowerment and supporting young people and fusing their social and political lives. I think I kind of want to segue into the the work around empowerment that is central to the work you're doing. So you're focused on empowering students to to translate digital literacy into civic engagement. And I'd like you to kind of flesh out the link between the two. And I'm particularly interested in how this might apply to younger students.
3: You know, it's a really interesting question. Um, just as literacy overall is being transformed by the digital revolution, uh, there are amazing and significant changes to the ways in which the practice of politics have changed in the digital age, as well as you know the practice of other forms of civic engagement. The internet and digital media are now central to the political process. The features of social media and digital media more broadly are central to the way money is raised to the way people get their information, to how people are mobilized to act, to the ways those of us who have uh, significant concerns might try to mobilize others, social media and the internet more broadly, structures through which people share perspectives and discuss issues. So these changes have created powerful opportunities and I think particularly powerful opportunities for young people at the same time that they've created a lot of challenges. So part of the reason that it's made such a big difference for, for young people, which I, I think is part of your question, is because many of the practices they use uh, almost constantly in their social lives are practices that also work very well uh, in their political lives. And that's actually a bit different than what we might think of as traditional forms of political activity, right? So for example, commenting uh, or using memes and circulating information through social media is very much parallels what they're doing anyway around their interests, around their social uh, engagement, around their interest in entertainment, things like that. But young people didn't do things like write op-eds as part of their social lives. So a lot of the traditional forms of of political participation are really quite different than what kids do in their uh, social lives, but that's not true for digital. It really does align, and therefore kids can use some of the skills and practices and norms that develop uh, through that social activity uh, in the service of being involved civically and politically. At the same time, this creates a lot of challenges. So it's true now that young people are more likely to get information about politics through social media than through institutional mechanisms like news broadcasts or reading the newspaper. But it's also true that those forms of social media have less vetting uh, and gatekeepers, and as a result, there may be more misinformation, there may be more disrespectful interactions, Uh, A whole wide range of forms of dysfunction are common. And so these are also challenging times for young people who are engaged in these ways. And indeed, of course, they're challenging times for all of us when we engage in politics through, through these media. I think, you know, one key question then is how can educators support youth to learn about these issues, to reflect on the dynamics that are new and emerging, and to develop strategies for dealing productively with them.
1: So something that just occurred to me is this notion that we hear a lot um, about young people and how they're using, say, social media to advance activist causes. And that it's, well, that's not as effective as the activism we saw in the past, like the 60s and the 70s. It's, you know, it's less cohesive. How how do you address those kinds of sentiments in the work that you're doing as you, you try to empower young people through those means that are being criticized?
2: Yeah, I think that's a, a question that, you know, we all ask ourselves. It's like, what is the impact of these new forms of participation, especially as we compare them to historical or traditional forms? And I think, you know, as many people that the term slacktivism is often um used to sort of talk about these um, various online forms of engagement, and I think um, you know we have a colleague Jen Earle at the University of Arizona who who really tries to um, kind of flip the framing around selectivism, and instead she calls it flash activism, to be able to indicate that this is a form of engagement, and they're instead of thinking about there's engagement that has impact and then there's engagement that doesn't. Instead, we think about a sort of spectrum of various ways that you can engage that have different types of impact. So it really, you know, for something like flash activism, where you get high numbers of people involved very quickly in a very specific way can be very impactful depending on the audience that you want to reach and depending on your aim. So for example, you want to impact one particular sort of corporation, for example, and you want a bunch of people to sort of come out and say, you know, we're no longer going to buy these products until they sort of shift their message or they shift their relationship around something, then that can be really impactful if you're wanting people to be engaged over time then you may use a different kind of strategy but I think the other really important thing and this connects to what Joe was saying is that because many of the sort of online and digital forms of civic engagement that we see young people using now because it aligns so well with many of the ways that they engage generally it creates these very important pathways into civic engagement that we didn't have before so if a young person you know may engage in a very sort of like quick specific way around an issue that matters to them then it creates a pathway for them to be engaged more in the future and it creates a kind of opening for them to sort of think about what are other things i could do to sort of have an impact on this issue so i think we have to sort of reimagine the ways in which we think about, you know, the kind of spectrum of engagement and the different pathways that can really be significant for young people, maybe getting involved for the first time around something um, by using digital media. So
1: how can teachers merge these two and, and encourage civic engagement through digital literacy? What are some things they can actually do in their classroom practice to encourage this?
2: Yeah, so I think there, we found a number of different um, ways that teachers can make a difference. And I think as we've, as we've all kind of, you know, spoken to, it really is important, we find, for um, teachers to integrate this sort of combination of civic learning and digital literacy learning opportunities that teachers really can play an important role. And as we've talked about, that, you know, young people can be really, frequent users of digital media, but that doesn't mean that they know how to sort of take their skills around texting or tweeting and then doing it for a sort of powerful civic purpose. So there are four things that we've found from our research and also from our work with teachers that are ways that teachers can integrate this. So the first one is around investigation. And so we found that it's really important for educators to find ways to support young people to analyze and evaluate the range of information and media that they can find online. So this is what we were talking about earlier that's really helping young people not only be able to judge the credibility and the accuracy of information, but particularly around social and political information for them to be able to also reflect on not only the author's bias or maybe political leaning, but also their own and how that might cloud their um, judgment of the kind of accuracy of that information. And then the second thing is around dialogue. So of course, civic dialogue has always been very important to democratic life and democratic education but the digital world has sort of opened up all of these amazing opportunities to be able to engage in dialogue around pressing issues, around controversial issues with people that you wouldn't normally have connected with before. Um, So it, it can expose you to a range of perspectives and opinions, but at the same time in the online setting, it's really important that we help young people know how to sort of navigate online civic dialogue in ways that can be productive and also respectful. So then the third thing that we you know, think is really important as you think about civic and digital literacy is to really help young people build the skills to be able to produce media. So to be able to produce content around a sort of civic or political idea or content, and then to be able to circulate that in very strategic and impactful ways to the audience that you want to circulate it to. So whether that's you wanna raise awareness about an issue you want to kind of change the broader narrative or the story and bring in a new perspective, or if you really want to sort of push back and give feedback around something. And then the final thing I would say is that, you know, we do find that it's really important for young people to be able to learn effective strategies to work for change. So if they do want to make a difference around an issue, for them to be able to understand what are the kinds of tactics and strategies that I can use and where and when and to what extent is digital media going to help, be helpful. And in many ways, we find that young people are using a combination and also adults are using a combination of sort of face-to-face strategies as well as digital media. So how do we help young people sort of identify what are the ways in which I can be most effective and strategic and thoughtful as I'm learning about these issues and then wanting to respond to them.
1: So I was just a second ago and um, what you just said also is kind of playing into this question that I wanna ask, which is about, I guess it's a combination of the second, third and fourth points you were making. We see, I would say increasingly uncivil discourse across the world, but certainly online and we, we wanna be able to encourage young people to you know, respond in respectful, productive, and effective ways. So I'm wondering how, when, when you're encouraging young people to engage in these respectful, civil ways, how does that focus translate into what they're also producing online? Does that make sense? Yeah.
3: It does. Um, So maybe a couple thoughts related to it. One of the things that, you know, we've seen a lot of, right, is that part of why digital engagement is very engaging for kids and why they sometimes are very well positioned to leverage the power of it is it connects with things they do in their social lives. But the flip side of that or the related challenge associated with that is many things kids do in their social lives and certainly many of the things they see when they watch how other people behave in these contexts uh, aren't what we might view as ideal when it comes to ways to interact either socially or politically and there can be big incentives for example to say inflammatory things because that's how you get attention and if you want to see what you say circulated sometimes you get positive feedback for doing things that as educators we might not think are helpful not think are civil not think are appropriate and so it's really important you know as erica was saying for teachers not just to model appropriate behavior, but to talk with kids about it. And one of the things that we've seen when this happens, and it can be surprising, is how many students haven't given a ton of thought to, and and frankly, this is probably true of all of us, of adults as well, haven't given a ton of thought to the consequences of some of the things we post or say. And the consequences can in many ways be more severe because you don't have the face-to-face context that you might have in a classroom discussion where you can read how the audience is experiencing something. It also can be worse because it can appear anonymous. And in some ways it can be for young people, and again frankly for adults as well, problematic because the shelf life of those comments can be forever. So unlike something you might say in a classroom that was inappropriate and then disappears, the things that you say that are inappropriate that are online can show up 10 years later. So all of this, I think, underscores the need that I think your question was getting at to help students be reflective and thoughtful before they do some of those things. And one thing we can say from both research on this but research in general is that not all students will take away those lessons when it's talked about. But many, many students will, that they find explicit conversations about what are the pros and cons of handling a situation in this way versus that way, super helpful in shaping the way they then behave outside of the classroom setting. And to the extent that other students or the teacher can help them imagine new ways to respond to challenging situations, many students will use those those methods or those approaches or modify them for their own use going forward. So if we think it can make a big difference.
1: Speaking of making a difference, I was just reflecting on the fact that you both are former K through 12 teachers. Um, so Eric, I believe you said you were ELA in English. Do I have that right?
2: Yeah, and social
1: studies. And social studies. And Joe, you, you taught social studies. So I'm wondering with yeah, the, the research that you have done over the years through CERG and, you know, the, the other work you've done in your academic life, what do you know or understand now about how to integrate digital literacy into your work that you didn't know when you were, back when you were teaching social studies or when you are teaching uh, those other classes?
2: Yeah, I think I would say that When I was in the classroom, I think similar to what Joe said at the beginning of our conversation is that I really saw digital literacy as more about consumption and less about also helping my students to really think about production and circulation. So I think that's one thing. I think the other thing that I didn't necessarily see initially was that it is, there is an aspect of um, engaging students with digital media and with digital tools and also opening up your classroom to this sort of wider audience that stretches beyond your classroom walls. I think I, I was maybe more overwhelmed or daunted by that than I may be now, right? So I think that there's an element of this that there can be some unpredictability, some things that come up that are kind of unknown. But I think there's also an incredible power to that and an incredible power to really letting your students lead and really letting students be um, letting their voices and the ways in which they um, identify tools that they might use that they're very familiar with to really um be okay with letting young people kind of have a little bit more of the reins, I think, in the classroom, especially as it comes to these types of tools or these platforms where where they can really have a much more powerful um, and expansive sort of voice and reach. So I think it's very exciting, and I think those are the things I didn't quite maybe see when I was in the classroom before. Thank you for that, Erica.
1: Any uh, thoughts on your end, Joe?
3: When I was teaching high school, it was in the 80s. And the typical assignment related to this kind of thing would be, can you look at a political cartoon? Can a kid look at a political cartoon and figure out what the message was? Right? That was, that was what it meant to educate someone to engage with those kinds of media. And, of course, if they were doing research, can you go to the library, find... Uh, magazine articles that speak to the issue you care about and take information down from those without plagiarizing right it was it was so far from what would happen today if any of us were going to be researching an issue we never showed kids political cartoons that were inappropriate we never said would this cartoon be something you'd want to circulate Uh, There was no way for kids to circulate I mean they'd have to go to a photocopy machine or something and then hand them out It it would be absurd So I think there are just tons of ways in which This revolution around the ability to circulate to remix to create and to share as prime ways of influencing uh, what people in their peer group are aware of is both exciting and daunting. Another thing that is very different, I think, and and, uh, is also challenging for those of us in an academic space, is many of the most productive political forms of communication are not, you know, five paragraph essays. They are potentially tweets. They're potentially posts on Instagram. So we don't want to let the academic norms that we all grew up with to be imagined as the only productive, important way to communicate. To be fully literate in today's world means knowing how to leverage all of these forms of communication. And those kinds of issues were never something I considered as a teacher.
1: That's such an important point, this idea of, as you just put it, not, not getting caught up in what we consider to be traditionally appropriate academic texts or, you know, texts for exploration in a classroom. Because the world we live in, that, that just doesn't make sense anymore. Tweets are kind of essential to the news that we're seeing every day. Uh, a lot of things break over Twitter, um, and, and young people need to be aware of that and have opportunities to explore that. In class. Thank you for that. Well, I think we're just about ready to wrap up now. Do you have any resources that you would recommend to educators as they build up their own knowledge, as they consider new ways of approaching both civic and digital literacy and engagement in the classroom? Any go to's?
2: Yeah, well, if it's okay to say some go-tos that are things that we've created and then I'll mention a couple others, but you I can think totally one, do that. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that we are really excited about is that we just wrote an article um, called Misinformation in the Information Age and it just came out in the September issue of the magazine Social Education. Um, that's through the National Council on the Social Studies on NCSS. So Oh, um, if folks want to look at that. Thank you. Yeah, and that article speaks to much of what we've talked about, and it also has some classroom examples of some ways in which teachers have um, integrated these things into their classrooms, so some projects and lesson ideas. Um, and that can be found on the um, ncss.org website or on our website. So our civic engagement research group website is civicsurvey.org. And then the other, um, two other resources I would mention, one is that we've worked in collaboration with the teaching channel, which many people may be familiar with, um, to develop a curated collection of videos of lessons and teachers doing this work in the classroom so if people are interested in seeing like what can this actually look like in the day-to-day there are some great videos there and then there are also other educational resources readings blog posts some relevant research that people can look at and that on the teaching channel it's called a deep dive on educating for democracy So that's one resource. And then myself and two colleagues of mine, um, Carrie James and Sankita Strathova, just developed, drawing on much of the research that Joe and I have talked about, and then research of other teams we've worked with, developed something called the Digital Civics Toolkit. And that's just toolkit.org. And that toolkit has a number of modules with um, lesson ideas and resources around how to engage around these kinds of practices that we just talked about. And then, of course, we, we are tweeting out through um, a handle that we can share, which is at ed4democracy, and the four is the number four. So it's E-D, the number four, and then democracy.
1: Excellent, excellent. Just thank you, again, both of you so much. This is so important. We know that throughout our history, young people have really led the way toward uh, necessary change and uh, speaking up for you know, really important issues are speaking up against injustice, or, you know, just things that needed to change socially. And so the work you're doing is so important. And um, the way you're encouraging educators to encourage that engagement is so important. All right, thank you for sharing your expertise, your resources, and just all your fabulous work. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. We're so glad to be able to have the conversation today.
3: Yeah, definitely. This has been great. So thank you very much for this chance.
1: That was Erica Hodgen and Joe Kahn of the Civic Engagement Research Group at the University of California at Riverside. Thank you for tuning in to The Mind Online, a podcast of Teaching Tolerance, which is a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. And special thanks to our guests, Erica Hodgen and Joe Kahn. I'm your host, Monita Bell, Senior Editor for Teaching Tolerance. This podcast was inspired by Teaching Tolerance's Digital Literacy Framework, which offers seven key areas in which students need support developing digital and civic literacy skills, and features lessons for kindergarten through 12th grade classrooms. Each lesson is designed in a way that can be used by educators with little to no technology in their classrooms. The Digital Literacy Framework and all its related resources, including a series of student-friendly videos and a professional development webinar, can be found online at tolerance.org diglit That's tolerance.org D-I-G-L-I-T. This episode of The Mind Online was produced by Jasmine Lopez with help from Laura Flynn. Production was supervised by Kate Schuster. Teaching Tolerance Deputy Director Adrian Vandervalk and Senior Writer Corey Collins assisted with the script. If you like what you've heard, then share this podcast with your friends and your colleagues. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen.
0: Now that you've listened to this episode, you can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast pd pd for professional development that's podcast pd all one word you can also find that link in the show notes then enter the unique code word for this episode audience all lowercase thanks for listening to the mind online